Hi, I'm Victor, one of the creators of Untextbooked, and I'm hosting this episode for Gabe. Because he's not just our host, he's also a producer, and it's his turn to interview an author. Gabe Hostin is interested in nutrition, and he wanted to understand how the American diet first became so saturated with unhealthy foods that contribute to illnesses like diabetes and heart disease. You know, my biology predisposes me to certain foods that people know about, and then they try to, like, hack that biology. And I wanted, like, an explanation of how did we get here, right? Like, that's the question that so many of our producers are asking. How did we get here? That brought him to the book Salt, Sugar, Fat by journalist Michael Moss. It's a book about how just a handful of companies came to dominate the industry and our diets. Food giants, he calls them, like Coca-Cola, Lunchables, Kraft, Frito-Lay. These food giants, not only are they amazing at advertising, but they have like food chemists and even like behavioral biologists that tailor their foods to have that perfect amount of sweetness, saltiness, fattiness. We are <laughs> biological beings, right? Like we're wired certain ways. And the food giants know this. After the break, Gabe interviews Michael Moss about how the food giants got so powerful by taking advantage of societal shifts after World War II changed the way Americans eat. I'm Victor Yi, and you're listening to Untextbooked. Untextbooked. All right, uh, Michael, I'm so excited to meet you. Just what motivated you to write this book exactly? So I was working for the New York Times as an investigative reporter, and I had a, a line of stories that were examining contaminants in food, everything from salmonella and peanuts to E. coli in hamburger. And one of my best sources tested meat for pathogens for the meat industry. And we were having dinner one night in Seattle. He goes, you know, Michael, as, as horrible as these incidents of contamination in hamburger are, and they're really bad, you really should look at things that my industry, and he was talking about the meat industry, intentionally adds to their products. And he was, he was really interested in the gobs of salt that's added to processed meat. And I took a look at salt, and then I took a look at sugar, and then I took a look at fat and realized that sort of that, that trio, that unholy trinity, if you will, of ingredients that the processed food industry is using are really sort of weapons in their hands, using them to, to get us hooked on and overly dependent on their products. And so I thought, hey, that would make a really great book, just kind of focusing on those three ingredients as their strategy uh, for getting us hooked on their products. And, and there's nothing sort of inherently wrong with salt, sugar, fat. I mean, I have, I have my share of it in my kitchen I and mean, home cooks use it. Although there's no way that in your own kind of cooking, you can use as much or, or kind of the precise amounts of those three ingredients, like the, like the food giants do, the processed food giants. They use extraordinary science to perfect the amounts and the combinations of those three ingredients to send you know, us over the moon and their products flying off the shelf. 
And so who are these food giants? Yeah, so these are the, you know, handful, I mean, there are sort of hundreds of food companies out there, but really sort of the the largest percentage of the products that we eat are controlled by maybe a dozen food companies that by and large started out in the United States with some, some exception and have gone international in terms of their power to create and sort of control our eating habits. And so we're talking about Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Kellogg's, Mars, um, Nestle is one of the exceptions being a European country, Unilever out of Great Britain. And collectively, you know, they account for most of the sales in most of the supermarkets and most of the food, um, the processed food that we have come to rely on. Right. You, I read in your book, they had like food chemists to like behavioral biologists to perfect their uh, their ingredients, right? And and those people working for them sort of describe their work as engineering food products. I mean, to give you an example, I had the I had the pleasure of meeting a, a, a celebrity in the food business named Howard Moskowitz, who was trained in high math at Queens College and then experimental psychology at Harvard. And he he's responsible for many of the biggest sort of food icons in the grocery store. And he walked me through his recent creation of a new flavor of soda for Dr. Pepper, the, the soda company, in which he started with no less than 60 versions of sweetness, subjected those to three or 4,000 consumer taste tests around the country, and, and then came up with the perfect amount of sweetness, not too little, not too much, that would wow the largest you know, majority of us. And, and the thing about sugar, while we're on sugar, it's, it's not that the companies have, you know, engineered the precise amounts of sugar to make their products attractive. And by the way, it was Howard who coined the term the bliss point to describe the effect that sugar has on, on the brain. What they've done is sort of marched around the grocery store, adding sugar to products that didn't used to be sweet before. So that now is created this expectancy in us, especially in children who are hardwired for sweet taste, that everything should taste sweet. And so when you drag yourself or your kids or your parents over to the produce aisle where we all know we should be eating more Brussels sprouts and celery and broccoli, and we're getting some of those other basic tastes that Aristotle wrote about way back when, like bitterness or sour, you have a rebellion on your head because your brain is going, hey, wait a minute, where's the sweet taste that I've become accustomed to? When, how did that knowledge of food science evolve over uh, the past century, let's say? After World War II, you know, the percentage of women working outside of the home soared um, tremendously. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's, we went from something like 30% to 80% of women of a certain age. And, and that was a huge factor because, you know, it was incumbent upon women to shop and prepare the family dinner by and large as a, as a stereotype. But it was true. And as more women were working outside of the home they were feeling like they couldn't spend as much time cooking dinner as they did before and the men weren't stepping up either they were already working outside of the home so that was a that was a really big moment in the food industry when we 
became attracted to convenience foods, foods that you could cook by simply opening up the package and pouring it in a pan or in the oven. And the industry, in fact, coined the term convenience foods and ran with that phenomena in selling us on processed foods. I mean, you can also go back to the turn of the century of 1800s to 1900s when Kellogg's discovered that by adding some sugar to cereal, um, we'd go crazy for us. And so some of the more other biological aspects that attract us to processed foods became known to the food companies all the way back, you know, 120 years ago now. And one of the big factors is that schools used to teach us something called home economics, where they teach you how to shop, think about food, prepare, plan a budget, basically prepare your own meals. And, you know, starting in the 80s, home economics being taught in school shifted from food to other societal concerns. Um, home economics began shifting to getting a job, um, teenage pregnancy and how to deal with having a child when you were 16 or 17 years old. These other sort of societal concerns increased in their importance so that our concern about food sort of fell away. So we became dumber technologically when it came to food preparation at the same time that the companies became smarter about food. And so one of the ways that happened was going back to Howard Moskowitz, who invented the, the term the bliss point. One of his first jobs was to create those ready-to-eat meals for soldiers in combat, you know, packages that could sit in, you know, on the shelf in their barracks for three years without going bad and then be attractive enough to the soldier that they would actually eat them in a stressful moment in, in, in combat. And so some of these food scientists started out working on that and then shifted over to the processed food industry, bringing this incredible science that they had learned. And so we're talking about the 1960s, 70s, when increasingly the companies brought in and relied on mathematicians, engineers, technicians to, to develop this extraordinary science that, that, that goes into their products. And then the marketing aspects too, right? I mean, that that evolved also in the, in the 1980s to where the companies were bringing in people who understood that if you hit the right buttons, they can get us to eat for purely emotional reasons, not, not actual hunger. And so much of the advertising that you see in food is aimed at hitting our emotional buttons that 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 get us to eat again, even if we're not actually hungry. And and those kind of big changes played right into the hands of the food giants who were all too willing to change their products to meet these new social norms. And so they began pushing convenience, ready to eat, snackable foods, foods we could we could hold with one hand while playing computer games or, you know, driving down the road with the other hand. And that contributed to sort of what experts called mindless eating, which is 
this phenomenon that if you if you don't pay attention to what you're eating, I mean, not only are you not going to enjoy the food like you like you might otherwise, but you're likely going to overeat. And by and large, if you look at just the obesity numbers in this country, I mean, we've gone past 40% of American adults who aren't just overweight, but actually obese. Right. That's like, honestly, insane. Like 40% of us are almost obese. I even heard like even another 30% are overweight, at least. That's right. So when you add overweight and then obese um, together, it's something like 70% of the population, which is which is rather incredible. And that's not to say somebody who's overweight can't be can't be healthy. It's a, it's a crude measure of our sort of over dependency on food. But but as I'm finding out in the next book that I'm writing, I mean, once you gain weight excess weight, it's really hard. Excess body fat, it's really hard to get rid of that, to get rid of that that fat. And so that dependency we have on processed food becomes even even deeper and more insidious as you as you go down that road. And that's what most people find. But what I was what I was getting at is that sort of in response to our kind of disordered eating that leads to to us needing to diet to sort of radically change our eating habits through through something like a diet, the companies have responded by inventing diet foods. And so the supermarkets now are filled with things like lean pockets, which sit right next to the hot pockets in the frozen shelf. Those, you know, those microwavable um, processed food sandwiches made by made by Nestle. And, uh, and one of the remarkable things is that there's often very little difference between the diet version of their regular product and the regular product. And it's almost as if it's designed to sort of, you know, be everything for us. When we're dieting, we'll grab the lean pocket. And when we fall off the diet, we'll grab the regular hot pocket. And the, the companies are winning kind of both ways and getting us fat and then making money when we try to get ourselves Thin. And that's one of the more treacherous aspects of the current sort of food environment is this is this pretense by the food giants to be truly changing their products for the better when in fact they're they're only marginally better for us and and missing the bigger picture anyway. What do you think about the government and how do they have any responsibility here, let's say, to regulate these food giants? You know, responsibility maybe, but by and large in this sort of political environment, I mean, I'm not optimistic that the government can do much in terms of regulating the food environment or will do much in terms of regulating. I mean, the one exception to that are sugar taxes, which is sort of imposing a tax on sugary drinks and other sugary products in hopes that... Um, people will then buy less of those products. Beyond that, I don't see the federal government or even states sort of jumping into regulating food in a in in a, in a wholehearted manner. I mean, I think going forward, it's going to be incumbent upon us to change our eating habits, which will then cause the food companies. Uh, to change their products to to truly reflect our our change. What are you? What do you think we should take away from this? How should we 
change the way we buy food and eat food? I mean, I like to think of I like to think of food and especially processed food in terms of politics. Um, I mean, in terms of sort of control and power. And I think the question for us individually is: I mean, do we do we want to continue letting these companies, you know, dictate our eating habits and control our eating habits? Which to me seems ludicrous that that we would empower them with such an important aspect of public health and our well-being or do we are we willing are we able to sort of change that and take control of our food uh, and our eating habits for ourselves convenience is a bit of a myth when it comes to processed foods and food you know good food is fuel for the body and the brain and being aware of how changing one's eating habits to eat more fruits and vegetables and less processed food, you'll start feeling stronger. You can you can actually notice the difference after a while. Thank you so much, Michael. This was an amazing interview. I feel like I, I've learned so much just talking to you. Oh, great. Uh, Salt, Sugar, Fat by Michael Moss is found like anywhere. And Michael, where can they find you online if you want to plug like some social media or website? I have a website called mossbooks.us. Again, Michael, thank you so much for uh, interviewing today. Thanks for having me. Michael Moss is a journalist who writes about the food industry. In 2021, he's releasing a companion book to salt, sugar, fat called Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Gabe Hostin produced this episode. Gabe is currently on a gap year, but will be attending Harvard University in fall 2021. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. On Textbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Entman. Fernanda Rain is the salt on our pretzel. Our website is untextbook.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Untextbook. If you like what we do and want to help, go to untextbook.com and click support. Untextbook is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.